Hi, and welcome to the VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour. And before the show starts, I just wanted to flag with you guys about SIDGRAPH Asia 2023. SIDGRAPH Asia is coming to Sydney. Uh, the conference is on December 12th to December 15th. And we really hope as many of you as possible can come down to Sydney for the event. It's going to be an absolutely cracking event. There's just some brilliant technical papers coming out. Uh, the emerging tech the demo scene, which is going to be really good this year, I know for a fact, uh, as well as Real Time Live, which is going to be really good. And uh, of course, the Computer Animation Festival and so, so much more. One of the key uh, speakers this year is going to be Joe Letteri from WetterFX. Yep, Senior Visual Effects Supervisor Joe Letteri will be giving one of the uh, absolutely pivotal key speeches and talks at SIGGRAPH Asia. And it'd be just a real joy uh, to hear him talk again. So hopefully you can uh, join us. If you want to find out more information about coming down, and we certainly hope that you do, uh, go to asia.sidgraph.org forward slash 2023. That's sidgraphasia.org 2023. And uh, yeah, we really hope you can make it. And if you do, of course, I personally <laughs> will be here and very happy to uh, see you. Okay, on with the show. G'day and welcome to the VFX show, where this week we are going to be viewing the film The Creator. I'm joined as normal by my splendid co-host, Jason Diamond and Matt Willan. How are you, Jason? I'm great. Fully human, sadly, wishing to be maybe partially robot. And Matt, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm hoping I don't have a giant hole in my head, but you never know. Yeah. <laughs> So this is a film that I think all three of us were like super enthusiastic to talk about, yep. um, not least of which because, well, I guess a couple of reasons. For me, Gareth uh, Edwards is the director and uh, we've known Gareth for many years. In fact, he did uh, courses for us at FXPHD, um, but we knew him way before even Godzilla, but when he was doing work for the BBC. Um, so anything he does, I'll go and see. And then secondly, I genuinely thought the trailer for this film looked like a cracker. So even if I hadn't, been super enthusiastic about it from uh, Gareth's point of view. It was just looked like a nice original sci-fi film. ILM's doing the visual effects, like what's not to like. And that trailer just uh, mm -hmm. had all the things you want out of a trailer. But I'm assuming you guys are the same. Yeah. Just hit the right buttons. what do you think of that trailer? Yeah. I mean, same. I mean, I uh, have known Gareth, you know, in, in, in the circles for a very long time since Monsters, I think. And uh, always cheering him on from the sidelines, you know, good people making good content is not the norm in a lot of, you know, ways. And he's, he's a super nice dude and always makes good work. Um, and I, I mean, just knowing that he was doing another project and knowing that like Oren and Frazier were shooting it and ILM and all the boxes that you mentioned, and then seeing the, seeing the trailer finally like it's it, it it's you're just what you're like okay it's all there like it's going to be all there you know yeah i'd agree i mean i think it's something that like it's so um 
ridiculously timely, you know, it comes out like fully formed right <laughs> around the apex of the time that like, you know, the popular zeitgeist, like all around the world, people are talking about, you know, chat GPT and, you know, mid journey and, you know, stable diffusion, what have you, like all the different kind of emergence of all these tools. And the conversation is really starting in the culture around whether or not these, this is a great thing, or is it a hazardous thing for humanity, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, with great foresight, uh, you know, Gareth Edwards and uh, I guess Chris Weiss, you know, uh, who wrote, mm -hmm. co-wrote uh, Rogue One with him too, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, they come up with this, you know, pretty genius idea of creating a whole narrative around this very idea, you know, uh, sort of taken to the next level, right, where you have these, you know, sentient uh, robot characters. Um, but yeah, I mean, and visually, I thought... Um, you know, even going back to monsters, uh, and I, I loved Godzilla. I can't remember if I told you guys this, but I remember going to see that with my son in the theater and my wife, and we all sat in there and, and, you know, for the first 40 minutes, you never even see Godzilla. And then when you mm -hmm. finally see it, it's like the crowd erupted in cheers. And it's like, I don't hear crowds cheer in the movies that often anymore. And I just thought at that moment, you know, even though some people criticized the movie for that reason, I just feel like, that's what made that movie so fun and such a good Godzilla movie is that holding back on the thing that you really mm -hmm. want to see. So from that moment on, I think for sure, I was like, definitely, okay, I'll go see anything that Gareth Edwards makes from here on out. Yeah. I mean, there are so many great Gareth stories pre this film, but to loop back to your point, Jason, it isn't just though you mentioned some, you know, the great DOPs involved. It wasn't just them, right? Like, every department seemed to have yeah. like a killer person in it, like Hans Zimmerman doing the soundtrack, right? Like, oh my God, yeah. you know? And then uh, it was a, James Klein did the production design, right? Again, mm -hmm. oh yeah. my God. Like, so it was like clearly. Oh, and all the local talent that, that they, you know, absorbed into the, you know, uh, all the different countries, like what, like eight, was it eight countries or, or, you know, um, locales, main locales. I mean, and, and, you know, if, if anyone's been following it online, which I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast are in some capacity, you know, seeing, uh, I think the, one of the uh, Thai guys or Vietnamese, I can't remember, you know, cause there's, there's a bunch of different locales are saying like, oh, here's our green screen pop up. And like, it's two floppies from Amazon. You know what I mean? And here's a, you know, Oren posted something about here's a, um, a light that we had to diffuse and there's like a fertilizer bag put over the light. It's like using, using the tools that not because they need to be cheap because they solve the problem and you want to be nimble, right? Nimble. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, and we'll talk about it, but that's goes to the choice of shooting on the FX three and like using this kind of Frankenstein Ronin, you know, RS two kind of gimbal shoulder thing that just, gives you stabilized shoulder, but gives you, you know, like it's every, you can see every decision is so economical for an $80 million movie. You know, you're, you're, it's just, you know, you're going to have to do visual effects. You're never going to do that. Shoot it the right way. Shoot it, you know, for your end result, not shoot it and go, well, we'll just roto all that out because I'm sure there's tons of that, but I don't, I wouldn't for a second bet that there were throwaway shots that they said, we'll figure it out later. 
Well, and all those things yeah. you mentioned too, like just in terms of, you know, reading some of the behind the scenes about how it was shot and sort of having that really nimble, fast moving ability to like relight a scene, putting LED lights up on boom poles, you know, and like mm -hmm. running around uh, and capturing, you know, with the low light performance of that Sony camera. Like what's so cool is I didn't know any of that when I went and saw the film. And I just thought like, exactly. man, they spent a, a ton of ca cabbage on this picture. Like the effects are super great. Like the locations are amazing. And all the stuff that's shot like at night, well, and in the daytime, I mean, it is gorgeous looking footage. Mm -hmm. Like it's beautifully photographed and all the effects seamlessly kind of integrate into that. It, and it looks like a $200 million movie. You know, I exactly. don't know what the budget really was, but it's really impressive. It was, I think it was about 80. 80, yeah. It was yeah. 84 or 83 or something. I got to say, the other thing that I think is really nice about this film is like Gareth's been a complete, I'm going to use the expression gentleman, but like you could say stand up guy if you're from the East Coast mm -hmm. about what happened over Rogue One, right? Because in Rogue mm -hmm. One, there were all these stories about him not completing the film, blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to get into that because it's not something that I can speak to, except for I'll point out that like if you look at all the departments, like even uh, practical effects, Neil Corbin was. Now, Neil was on Rogue One, as was Greg Frazier, as was like, so many other people. So if, and of course it isn't the case, but if Gareth had been a dick on that film, how come all of these heads of department, exactly. all these senior yeah. people go to work with him on an $80 million film? So it's clearly not right. the case that he was shooting out of control, being uh, disorganized, being petulant, or any of the things that yeah, one no. might say, you know, or not making clear decisions. Because clearly... You know, you could say anything in the press, but actions speak louder than words. And all of these senior Academy Award winning super dudes and people are happily gathering around to work with him uh, on this film. It's such a good so, point. It's just all about relationships, yeah. you know, and you don't come back and work with somebody with whom you had a terrible experience. You just wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, you'd just be like, I'm, I'm especially, done with that. Yeah. Especially to your point trying to make a $200 million movie for 80. Like, let's let's say like, yes, they made smart decisions and everyone knows that there are costs in Hollywood that you just can't get away from at times at that mm -hmm. scale that caused the budget to go up. Uh, speaking not from experience on this particular project, obviously. Sure. But, but I mean, you're, the, if the economical choices in production reflect where the money was appropriately probably pushed to an ILM or, and I mean, there was obviously, I mean, I stayed for all the credits. There's like what, 10 or 12 vendors, like as, yeah. as there would yeah. be on any of these kind of films. Right. So it's like, again, to, to your point, a ILM isn't going to come and work, you know, handcuffed, uh, uh, based on what you're going to doing if you're, if you're a troublemaker. So I think, I mean, yeah. I think, I don't think anyone ever thought that in the real world about Gareth, but there's certainly, you know, press and other things that, that try to paint other pictures for, for bullshit Hollywood reporter reasons, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think he's just been really classy about how he's dealt with that. And of course, you know, the bottom line is this film, even at a studio level is like fitting back in with the major studios. So, mm -hmm. you know, like you can't, you, people can jump to assumptions and gossip, but it's really, you don't know what's going on inside um, uh, production. And I think that story was, was, why unfairly like kind of beaten up um at his expense but he you know did the right thing and just didn't wade in on it and and mm -hmm. uh took the high ground so that's good okay came back to the film for a second so the for me like i thought the film was really itself just a good film like i enjoyed it uh mm -hmm. i liked the kind of 
road trip aspects of it as much as I liked the visual spectacular. We're going to discuss the visual effects in a second and some of the neat tricks that they did in pulling stuff off. But just at a film, um, I also thought the the uh, acting in particular, of course, by the uh, young girl was just remarkable. I mean, mm-hmm. she just, because the film wouldn't have worked had you not yeah. believed that you'd do anything and flip your position on, you know, your entire military perspective on the fact that this person is, sorry, this AI is a person. So mm-hmm. her performance was spectacularly good. And I, Great. I, as you know, have uh, a severe love of certain uh, John David Washington films. So uh, <laughs> seeing him back is uh, is a good thing for me. But leaving aside that yeah, discussion, I, I'm I, that. I liked Black Klansman too. <laughs> and also Alison Jenny was in it. Like who doesn't want CJ mm-hmm. to, it's on the, yeah. the greens? What a great choice. And she's kind of really cast against type here. Like she's a hard Definitely. ass, nasty military type, which isn't yeah. what you'd think of when you think of CJ Craig. The character she played in West Wing, but I mean, I was like, "Oh my God, you, you had me at CJ." But you know, well, like, it's like the, that was yeah, the big yeah, U.S. Right. general guy too. I think it's the guy from The Witch. You know, the yeah, uh, it's Ralph Innocent. Yeah, with that crazy low register voice that he's just so doesn't good. even sound real. You know, but yeah. he's so fun to see on screen too. And like, just to like the casting choices, I thought were really fun and pretty inspired. And he assembled a really. um Interesting cast. I, I love too that Ken Watanabe, of course, is in the mix. That, yeah. The mm-hmm. only thing I would say though, just you know, because I think he's so great, like he doesn't do a whole lot in the movie. I kind of hoped he would, you know, do more, say more. He's sort of like a more he's sort of a secondary uh tier character in the overarching script, I think. But of course he was there in in Godzilla, right? So he worked with yeah. Gareth before yeah. and stuff. So yeah. Um, I mean, I I it, it's a smart script in that it it knows when it hits a trope and it goes into it leans into it right and then it knows when it's really making its own bones and leans into it as opposed to trying to like muscle it all the way through and being like no this is you know I, i'm not being specific because i don't want to like call out scenes but as a as a feeling like it felt like okay there are arc lines that are just traditional to sci-fi. There's arc lines that are traditional to sort of like, you know, a character's journey to changing positions and all that. And, and always, you know, searching for your wife, you know, there's so many movies that fall into that zone. I don't mean that as a copycat thing, just they're, they are tropes. I'm not using that word negatively, but it's, it was just great to set that framework for the audience to be able to maybe settle into a unfamiliar world unfamiliar timeline so you get those familiar familiarities which i guess you could say i mean inception has a very similar kind of thing with him and maul and the whole thing it's really just him and his wife there's all this you know mechanisms around it but it's him trying to to wreck the you know reconcile with his wife it's just similar thing i'm not saying they're similar movies but i'm just saying from a tropes perspective okay, so let's let's just agree if, but, if there's huge spoilers are about to be revealed so if you haven't seen mm-hmm. the film yet please go and see the film because yes gonna, please yeah. okay but keep going uh, yep but anyway so i'm just saying I, I always love and i think we all agree that and it's sort of the george lucas approach right like take the familiarity and then change it 
right? Like Luke is driving a pickup truck in a one, one, you know, one horse town that he wants to get out of, <laughs> you know, that makes sense to people. You don't have to want, worry about what all those other things are. Cause you get it anyway, long winded that it, it, it just felt really nice and, and textural and tactile and, and, uh, we can get into production design and ideas. Um, but I want to say up front, as someone, I think he's maybe a little younger than me, but as someone who grew up watching the same movies, there are so many little things in there that are not fan service because they have nothing to do with their movie, but they are clearly cinematic things that he has in his head. And I'll give two examples and Matt can throw out some because he's nodding his head. <laughs> the two ones that really jumped out at me were when they're in the when they're doing the drop ship and they're about to go uh, with Alice and Janney and the, they're with the Marines, basically. I mean, that's aliens, right? I yeah. mean, that is yep, the totally. way the Marines are all hot shot and he's basically Sigourney Weaver. Like you, I don't, you guys aren't ready for what's going to happen. I'm reticent. And then when I think it was Sturgill Simpson, when they jump in the pickup truck and the dudes in the back bleeding, I mean, that's reservoir dogs. Like it, that, those are those shots, but he's doing it because you would, that's what you would do. That's the right way to shoot that scene, but it's because it's embedded in all of our, in all of our brains. And I just loved seeing that, that textural cinematic language. And I will also throw out two deep purple songs in that movie <laughs> is, I mean, tur turning on the, uh, turning on the truck and hearing the end of child and time from made in Japan. I mean, what 1978 or whatever it is like I'm in, like, I was like, yes. Yeah. I think what you describe, I mean, that's a great description of so much of the stuff in the movie. And I think what you were describing before too, in a way as tropes, like the, those do exist in the film too. Like, I mean, you know, whatever the cinematic cliches, things that are kind of in so many movies, but I think, you know, clearly someone that is of uh, the same generation grew up watching the same kind of films and creates a visual language and situational, um, you know, uh, scenes that are laid out in a way that where they play out in a fashion that's reminiscent of the films that clearly were hugely influential to him, mm -hmm. you know, and probably to most people, most dudes anyway, in our generation, the films that really resonate. And I thought that was something that was great because it's not quite the same. And in the end, yeah, that like you're saying that the way in which the story uh, evolves, um, it always seems to depart uh, and gets into some really interesting um, territory around, uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I thought even around like the idea of um, euthanasia, you know, uh, mm -hmm. towards the end of the movie, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing to sort of play around with. And that idea of um, what was the the thing that he says to the, uh, to what's the little girl's name? Um, Alfie. Alfie. He Alfie. says something about like off, you know, power off or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And just yeah, that idea of, yeah. Like just that idea of, um, turning off the power, you know, like I just, I think mm -hmm. that as corny as it is, like, I think that that as a metaphor, I think it's kind of, at least to me at this present moment in my life, I find that really interesting. I, I also think that some other filmmaker might have said, oh, I need to subvert any expectations and had them yeah. kill Alfie. Yeah. And I would have hated that, right? I would have like, so I think there are two things that you kind of don't do in a film like this if you're mm -hmm. really 
know what you're doing. Firstly, is you do give the audience what you want. Like you, you want Alfie to survive, right? And subverting my expectations would have just made it a bad film. Mm-hmm. So I think that, and then the second thing that I think you want to do is you don't want to show off with your visual effects. You don't want to do a shot where you go, how did they do that? Because at the moment that you're doing the, how did they do that shot? You're mm-hmm. no longer in the narrative of the film. You're in the filmmaking of the film. Yeah. And so too so many times I'll see a shot and quite often, like I'll go back to the original mission impossible. Like there's a train shot and it's a very cool shot. The, the hell, the camera sort of flies in beside the train and goes right through the window and into Tom and there's no way you can watch that shot without kind of going, how do they do that shot? Was it a, back then they didn't have drones, but it's like, you know, did, was that a helicopter? What was that? Was it CG? Where was it? But at some point you just take it yeah. out of the film wondering how the shot came off. And I've heard directors in the room. I mean, I've been at a flame sitting there with my pen in my hand and they're going, <laughs> we want to do this shot so that the audience can't work out how we did it. And I'm thinking, man, if they're spending their time pondering like which buttons we pressed, we kind of yeah. failed, haven't we? Yeah, 100%. So, so in this case, it was like there were visual effects shots happening and they were so kind of not front and center, so not questioning how they did it, that I almost was like, wait a second, that's that's a robot or kind of wait a second. And I had to make myself uh, try and think about that stuff as opposed to the other way around. And so I think that's, that's I'll give that to the director. Now, I will say this before we go into the visual effects, I don't want to claim this is a perfect film because I had some no. minor issues with it. I'm not going to just fanboy it. Like for example- at the end of the film, again, we've said spoilers, at the end of the film, so there's a whole point where like uh, he's just put Alfie in the escape pod and then John David Washington's character suddenly seems to miraculously in like a matter of seconds jump to a completely different deck in a ship that's blowing apart in a field to meet his, let's call it his wife. And I'm like, wait a second, that's like, I just skipped a scene. Like, how did he even get there? Like, it felt like that was like a editorially just didn't flow for me. And so there were yeah. things like that where I was like, wait a second, that shot didn't kind of make I, total I sense. I think there's some missed opportunities too narratively. Like I think they they allude to it the tiniest bit, but the idea of, you know, uh, free will, right? Versus yeah. like one, the programming yeah. of a machine and, you know, choices. And, you know, it feels like maybe that's another trope, you know, of the genre or something, but I felt like that was sort of a missed opportunity because it does seem like that's also, and maybe it's not, you know, relevant to the story they wanted to write, but it feels like it's relevant to the present moment that we're living in. And that reflection of this idea of, you know, sentience, uh, free will versus, you know, programming, et cetera, would have been kind of an interesting um, thing well, to explore, like choice and and uh... to to be fair though, to be fair though, and maybe it's because it's not an A story. It's based on the A story, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not saying it's a perfect film. Very few films are. That does not a knock on the film, but the by simply showing that outside of America there are basically fully a fully robotic colonies that are functioning as a society, I think is the subtext to basically say that sentience and free will work in from robotic standpoint, because they've made the choice to not go like, just be killing killer robots that just destroy everything to take over. But there is also a robotic caste system too, where there's the simulants and then there's sort Mm -hmm. of like the non-humanoid looking robots. And then, the trash can robot, you know, like they Ooh, sort love, of live yeah. in, they live in these different universes too. Yeah. And of, also a hierarchy I, sort of. 
I completely loved the trash can robot. Like that was just brilliant. But they kind of, he'd set up that there was like we're not using AI in this American hemisphere, and they are in Asia. And yet there seemed to be a whole lot of robots or sentience or whatever you want to call them on the side of the Americans. Yeah. And so I was like, well, hang on, if you're not meant to be using AI, how come you're using AI? And if that's meant well, to show the hypocrisy of the military yeah. system, then that would have been nice to have been slightly more explored. And similarly, there's a great line where um, Ken's character says, you know what would happen if the war ends kind of thing? And he was like, nothing. And I'm like, well, that was really interesting. Couldn't we have a bit more of that? Like that, the whole yeah. idea that they just don't want to kill everybody and that they just want to, but it was almost like, it was just really interesting to have a character go, you know what would happen? Nothing. And then right. that sort of started like, oh, uh, that's interesting. Let's explore that. And then it was like, yeah. gone. So it, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, and I agree with you there. I kept trying to remember. So I, I, I had a couple of like, I, there was like, to your point that like time compression things, like, you know, you have a ship, the Nomad that's, obviously incredibly large and we've all been to las vegas and tried to walk to a casino and realize it takes two hours and you think it's across the street right so yep. like scale scale is important i'm not sure i mean it I, it stood out to me in both alfie and um uh what was john david washington's joshua? character's name again? right joshua. joshua yeah it's it stuck out to me when they get to Nomad about how fast both of them do what they need to do on a ship that's very large Death Star style. Um, but also at times they can't do things of, very quickly. Like right. sometimes it takes a while for them to do stuff. And so you've yeah. set the sort of film language that he can't just instantly go anywhere in the ship because yeah. he's trying to disconnect this or that. And then suddenly yeah, he can't. I, I, I kind of I kind of wrote that off as just like what's more important like logistics or story. Yeah. And in this case it's not an issue of like the impossible camera or our Spider-Man, you know, theories. It's it's really just a matter of what's more important, the beat or like distance. Okay, well travel. let me give you another example so, then. That same ship seemed to have a targeting system that would go down on the actual ground and have this kind of crosshair thing yeah. laser pointed on the ground. Yet at the end of the film, suddenly it was sending out multiple rockets to multiple different parts of what seemed to be different places in the world. Yeah. And the targeting system seemed to be irrelevant at that point. And then there was one target that it wasn't irrelevant for, but like, it, yeah. in like you kind no, of established cool targeting thing. That. And then suddenly the whole point was you could pull off a, you know, narrow escape in the time it took the rocket to leave the ship and hit its target. But earlier in the film, it was like, I'm right over the thing that I'm targeting and I'm yeah. going to shoot a rocket straight down and blow it up. And well, so I kind of like, saw that differently, well, though. I, I thought it was that the targeting system that we see, which, by the way, is such a cool effect, that kind of mm -hmm. like, yeah. you know, sort of laser light kind of blue yeah. uh, illuminating topography. Mist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so cool when it goes over the trees and stuff. I mean, just so neat looking. But I sort of saw that as almost like it was a, some kind of scanning System. That's what I thought for and AI. It, so it's scanning for AI and they would launch an attack from, you know, above when, you know, the, the collateral damage was minimal. And then in the end of the film, when they launch the, the missiles to destroy the large AI, like, you know, villages or centers of the AI population that they're making a different calculus where you know the no, the amount of collateral damage at that point for the 
you know, wackadoodle U.S. military dudes is so much more, um, they, they care less about it at that point. And so they're doing a more um, like, sure, you know, if that's what it was, that's fine. Approach. I just feel like it that's didn't, how I didn't get that. Yeah. I just didn't get that. But hey, again, I'm just pointing out that for me, like I'm not, I just don't want to pretend like we're here. There's three fanboys that are like buying no, no. everything. No, totally. But I, I love I, the I film. Would... I totally recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I, if t- to be critical, I would point to all of those things as, and I will take it all day as a lack of exposition, economy of storytelling function. That, yeah. that will be my dream and hope to assume that that's, that was the function of that. And not that there was, you know, I'd rather us be talking about, wait, what about, we had conversations and conversation starters about the ethos of this thing, that thing, and the other thing, than us talking about the five minute, you know, soliloquy that someone gave to explain <laughs> everything. So like, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, if that's, so the, if that's the worst thing we're going to talk about. Let's shift gears to art direction before we hit visual effects. Yes, please. So in, um, in uh, SIGGRAPH in LA, um, we got to talk to Gareth and stuff. And there was a great story that came out that I don't know if you guys, it's, I don't know if he's told this story in the popular press or not, but anyway, he was in COVID and he decided that the aesthetic he wanted for this film was if Apple lost and Sony had won mm-hmm. uh, in the kind of consumer space. And so he was like, so if Apple hadn't won and like, you know, the Sony Walkman had become the iPod that became <laughs> cool. the iPhone that became the whatever, yeah. then that would be the aesthetic uh, that you had. And so uh, he also had an overarching idea that you would either have stuff that was sort of before our time now or way in advance of our time now. So you had this kind of, it's either paddy fields or like hovering, you know, mm-hmm. spaceships that can defy gravity, right? But it's a kind of a Star Wars thing, right? It's either very old or very new, but not kind of current. Um, so even the car was kind of electric and weird if you remember the pickup. But anyway, mm-hmm. so so what he does in COVID is he goes on eBay himself with his own credit card and, stuff and just starts buying all of this older tech from the what I would describe as the Sony aesthetic, right? Now that could be video projectors, could be stereo gear, what all, you know, like vacuum cleaners, anything that he mm-hmm. thought that was of that design aesthetic out of Asia. And then he takes photos of it all. He takes photos of all of these bits and then he sends those to uh, James, who's the you know production designer and, and I think some other concept artists. And he said, basically make new tech with this. So they would then take the drawings, uh, so do drawings and from the photos and like meld two bits of tech together, right? And then send them back. And then he'd go, oh, I like that. And then he'd package up the things he'd bought on eBay that were of course right. the photos and send that off to the prop department saying, take these two things, cut them up and stick them together and glue them together in the way that the production designers went. So the heads of some of the robots that were like police or not, you know, like the mm-hmm. central uh, Sims that uh, had the childlike or the human-like faces, they were like video projectors hacked up with other bits of stuff. And in the famous bridge sequence where the tin can robot is coming off, some of those guys mm-hmm. shooting are shooting with jet blacked up versions of Nerf guns that Gareth had bought <laughs> on eBay that had just stuck bits of extra tech on. I mean, this is like not just to get it cheap, which of course it was super cheap to do it that way, but it just meant that he built on a, an existing kind yeah. of uh, aesthetic. 
But I thought, well, what yeah. a clever way to do those things, right? You buy this for a hundred bucks. It's a no, no longer 50 bucks, no longer working very well video projector. And suddenly, you know, spray it, put some decals on it and uh, modify it with a whatever. Well, a vacuum yeah. And I think, I think that technology design language, you know, I mean, that's a brilliant, um, you know, modern day version of, you know, if you read, um, you know, the making of Star Wars or the making of Alien, um, mm -hmm. you know, that whole process with all the people in, in London, that's how they developed and built out so many of the guns. So much of the, you know, hallway architecture and technology was they were going and raiding mm -hmm. old, uh, you know, junkyards with industrial equipment and old airplane parts from, you know, RAF, uh, airplanes and whatnot, and assembling these, uh, you know, elaborate environments with a design language that, you know, felt very in these, in those two cases, anyway, very real, very lived in industrial kind of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of antiquated tech, but, you know, it's the same kind of approach is in, it makes sense that that's what he would do too, because that's, you know, he, like we were saying before, he grew up reading all those same things and loving all those same kinds of movies. And so you think about, well, how do I create something that looks real and believable? You know, you go through that same, iterative process of digging into something that you think has a particular aesthetic and, and design language well, and you hybridize it and merge it together and remix it. And on top of that, you know, I think to all those points, product design is hard. And if some, if a piece of tech has gone through enough product design to become a real product, there is so much thought value in that piece of tech that even though you're pulling it apart, the functionality of those pieces have been poured over, thought about, and sometimes they're good decisions, sometimes they're bad in the products that come out. Obviously, we've seen products that you're like, what the fuck is this? But it's still someone thought about it. And all yeah. that thought is has value and man hours or people hours. And to, to reuse that is to reuse the all that energy uh, to the point where like I saw like maybe three at least three different kinds of like binocular type things. And mm -hmm. there's the standard like two eye and two eyes to you and a mono monocle, monocle, monocle in the front with the scanner, like Luke style. And that's everyone would make that given the chance. But then there was another one that was 100%. It was the big tube and eyepiece off like a old Sony ENG camera yeah. with like another thing on the end of it. And so the guy's holding basically the eyepiece like you would if you had it on your shoulder with another bit on it. And I was like, that's awesome. Like yeah. you can see it. And again, because the design language had already been thought out, it makes sense that it's mm -hmm. being used that way. We as humans in 2023 know what it is, but in that world, it, it well, works. And I, well, Matt, and isn't also, that the, I was going to say, Matt, what? isn't that the ultimate connection to the Grass Valley 300 switcher in the original yeah. Star Wars? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it looked like it was something that would be on a Death Star, and it's just a Grass Valley switcher with a fader knob, right? But like, yeah. if you didn't know it was a Grass Valley switcher, it certainly looked like it. Somebody, as you say, Jason, had thought about the design of it. You yeah. couldn't understand it, but it looked like it had something, think, some thinking behind it that would make sense. Well, and in 1977, nobody really as a large percentage of the populace knew what a grass valley switcher was or a switcher or that technology really in general now you know black magic has an announcement at nab it's plastered all over your instagram you you we all have a much different um sort of memory bank of tech that we're just seeing 
But in 1977, yeah. probably half that stuff had never been seen by the general populace. So you could get away with it, even to like the Death Star guys operating the thing are wearing like French Tour de France bike helmets painted black, or at least that's <laughs> what it looks like, right? Uh, but I do want to say that I was so excited by the running trash can bomb guys. Oh, so yeah. unexpected because they hadn't alluded to that kind of thing at all. And probably to your point, Mike, about that military not using any robotics or anything. So it's a great moment to show that. And when the when when they say to the bomb and the bomb turns around and goes, it's a pleasure serving you or whatever. Yeah, no. Starts huffing it down the bridge. Just this <laughs> like perfectly animated, like weight and chunk and just like this big th headless thing running was, I was like, and I went by myself and I was just like, said out loud, I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, if that, you know, we've said this a few times that every time once in a while, someone does something like that. And you go, if I was that artist that had done that shot, I put that on my show yes. reel, nothing else, mic drop. It's like, yeah. I did that. Percent. Walk away. Thanks for playing. Yeah. yeah. Um, funny anecdote about also... that scene. Oh yeah, go ahead. Two funny anecdotes, maybe one I'd like you to get your opinion on, but the first one, just an anecdote. So the scene is got mist and kind of smoke going across the you know river mm -hmm. between them and the other side. And so they were, wherever, I think they were in Thailand, they were like, apparently they were like, okay, and I, I pardon my French, but they were like, we need a giant motherfucker of a, of a smoke machine. Like, and they called it the giant motherfucker. And so they got this giant motherfucker and they would set this sucker up and it would generate a vast amount of smoke slash, you know, not actual smoke, but you know what I mean? Like, movie smoke yeah. mm -hmm. but the point was that they had to work out which way the wind was because if they put it on the wrong side of the bridge yeah <laughs> it would all blow away from the bridge right so every time they went to shoot that sequence like they just like okay which way is the wind blowing and is it going to hold and then they would have to go and set up the barge with the giant motherfucker smoke machine on it and it would generate vast amounts of smoke and if they got it wrong and they had to go to the other side it would take you know quite a while to like pack all that up and move it on the other side mm -hmm. one of the few kind of big you know to our to our earlier point about being super agile like it was one of the few things that wasn't that particularly wasn't agile, agile, but I just yeah. like the idea of like going, okay, if we're going to shoot, everything yeah. else can be like as it is, but I do actually have to decide which side the wind is blowing and if that changes. Um, but the other one that I wanted to relate, which I would much prefer your opinion on, comes to visual effects. And so what Gareth said at SIGGRAPH was that he, in that sequence, and we'll just use that as an example, because we he played that like nine minutes at SIGGRAPH before the film came out. Um, he said to none of the actors whether or not they were going to be robots. Mm -hmm. His attitude was, if you know you're going to be a robot, forget the suit and forget the tracking markers, which most people are focused on. He said, if the individual that's playing the robot knows they're being a robot, they'll move in certain ways and make acting yep. choices. So he told no one and said, everybody is, you know, we don't know. You just got to act like you're uh, a human and, and we'll, you know, do other things later. So then they'd watch the footage and they wouldn't just pick out what was cinematically, you know, maybe where they wanted a robot or a sim, but they would actually say, that's the most human guy. So there are shots in there of people sitting kind of just with their legs apart, kind of back to a wall, kind of taking mm -hmm. a breath at a moment, which I'm sure the actor did as a freedom fighter, because that's what you do if you're a human, right? You'd be exhausted and you'd just stop and try and get your thoughts mm -hmm. for a moment. And that was the acting choices that that extra made, which of course, the second that he saw something that was incredibly human like that, he turned that into a, a robot. And so right. 
when that robot is running and decides not to go in where the family is because it'll kill the family, I'm sure the actor that was doing that was thinking that he was the father of the child in the hutch. But then when you take that and make it a robot, the robot not running into where the humans are because it'll mean that they'll get uh, killed has mm-hmm. a completely different layer of meaning. But it has, if I can use the term, so much humanity that it just elevated those shots to me through the roof. But I just thought it was like a really interesting acting, directing kind of tip to not even let, not to deceive, but just to say, no, 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 don't act like a robot, but don't even think that you are a robot. I I think that is, I remember hearing that, and I think that that is phenomenal. And I I would really love to know the genesis of that thought process, because it it must have come through some trial and error of some kind, or, or, I mean, it's not an idea out of the blue. Like you, you ruminate and as a director, I would love to know like how he arrived at that. It makes total sense. Like it's the most logical thing as a director, a, you can direct without having to like focus on the minutia of a specific actor doing a specific action in this case, being a robot and being like, I don't know. Does that feel like a ro-? like, no, just wipe all that off the map. And just, if we're trying to say that technology has reached a point where it's, it's unknowable in the in the context of the film, then it shouldn't matter. And I agree that moment, there's a number of moments where the where the rope the the robots, A, from a design perspective, we've all agreed are amazing, but their performances are so good. There's only one moment and I where there's a hum- humanity. <laughs> oh yeah, what's that? Yeah. And it maybe it's just me. I don't know. There's one shot uh and it's it's around that same sequence. I think it's when like, you know, the, the village is being, you know, uh, attacked, blown up, whatever. And there's a, um, a shot looking kind of up a hill and we see, uh, an AI like from behind, like kind of limping and running. And I think like holding the hand of a little kid or something. And, and, you know, I I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I just mean, it didn't quite fly as an AI, it looked like it looked like it was probably an older woman that was replaced with the machine. So so the legs are the machine legs, there's machine arms, there's a machine head, but then the body is the body of an older mm. woman. And it just kind of looked like a thing that it didn't quite like it was almost as if like they were starting to elude to this idea that the robot's physical form would age, not just the skin of the simulant face, but mm-hmm. that the robot itself like would would sort of decay and, and uh, change shape over time. And it was the one replacement robot that it looked like it, it looked like what it was to me. It was the one where I was like, oh, that looks like an older woman running that has been replaced with a robot, which, you know, to me, it just what do you guys think about? Out. What did you think about those robots that were the human-faced ones? Um, they they played a lot with how much they would replace, and they mm-hmm. discovered that when they didn't go with the hockey mask, when they because that's what's been done in the past, right? Like the face just sits at the front of yeah, like and that was Machina in style, yeah. yeah. Or I, I think AI, the Spielberg yeah. film, did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when they had the neck going down and it was just at the back, that it completely changed your kind of perception. Initially, I thought they'd done that because it's obviously cheaper to, you know, a lot of shots you don't have to worry because you don't, it's at the back of the frame. But in in reality, it was the tipping point where it 
it sort of, you could think of it as human and then you'd realize it was AI or you'd realize it was AI and then see that it was kind of human. Yeah. I just thought it was a really interesting because you never think about the neck as being that significant to the actor's performance, but it well, made all I, the difference. I liked, I liked the way it worked in the story. And I think, you know, counter to what I'm saying about the, the physical body mm-hmm. and the animation of the character where I was like, I don't know if it works in that one. I thought in the faces, the whole, the whole concept of like donate your likeness you know, mm-hmm. that sort of idea mm-hmm. of like, you're giving your likeness to be scanned for this face for this robot. And then Which you I've would done, see... by the way. What's that? <laughs> I've, I've actually done that. My my face is on the Epic Unreal store. You can download Oh, right. It. Yeah, I can download I've my Mike my... Seymour. Uh, oh, I, Seymour. I have been downloaded and put in people's films, especially my eyeballs. I used a lot. But so anyway, go good. on. I, I laughed at that so much because I've done exactly that. Yeah, I think what was so great about that was that you would then have these robots who some looked like, you know, uh, young people, men and women, and some looked like older people, and some looked really Mm -hmm. old with like real kind of leathery skin and stuff. And I actually thought that that was really cool because, you know, anybody could donate their likeness to be supportive of, you know, the AI or whatever, support AI, donate your likeness. And, And that the the AI probably would be, I mean, it made you think that the AI didn't care what likeness it had, right? It was just happy to have a likeness that was and to the generosity of the human donor. And so it removed something that I think in, in contemporary, you know, human culture, right? We start, we always talk about how, you know, everything is geared towards youth, right? It's always about the youth. And here it was like the robots don't have that same perception of a temporal sense of uh beauty or of an aesthetic sensibility and i thought that was kind of cool yeah it must have generated a lot of sorry go on oh no i was just gonna say i thought like i agree with all that but i think from an even super simplistic standpoint uh the the function of not knowing until something, you know, they did this in a couple of shots where they're talking to someone and they turn their head just enough for you to see it, just to, just to sort of subconsciously say, does it matter? Right. Mm-hmm. The person you're interacting with, are, are you having a interaction that's, which, which you could, which you could then extrapolate to our current world where people have problems with gender, race, whatever, whatever, you know, people who are, are less tolerant, uh, mm-hmm. have with somebody. And then, you know, there's all the stories of you meet somebody and they're like, Oh, he used to be a, this kind of guy, but now he really likes these kind of people because he had an interaction with someone that, that, you know, changed their mind because they got out of their bubble. And I yeah. think, you know, uh, you know, that maybe that's the Roger Ebert in me, but the, the, uh, the concept of, of the kind of, it doesn't matter, which is what all the AI are saying in essence, like, you know, of course, cause you, you find out later that the, the issue with the, uh, nomad, uh, or the AI going rogue and destroying something was actually a computer glitch and had nothing that was hand, was you know, human, human code. It was a human error, not a AI error, which of <laughs> course is, you know, speaks to hysteria and all that kind of stuff. So I, you know, there's a lot of subtlety in the story that, goes by that I hope is there because you're supposed to, you know, ponder it a little more. Uh, maybe it's thin, you know, thinner than it well, needs to be. I don't know, but it's a movie it's that's made there. for, it's a movie that's made for 
you know, I would argue for the most part, its target audience is us when we were 12, 13, yeah. 14, 15 yeah. years old. Like that's who it's made for. And so that's kind mm -hmm. of the audience that if it's targeting that audience, like there will be those, you know, for older people, like, a, a, a you know, potentially the need for a suspension of disbelief here and there. And I don't mind that. Mm -hmm. I think it's fine. Like that, you know, not every movie is made for me, but I can still appreciate yeah. it through the eyes yeah. of my former self, you know? Right. And I think this so, is one of those in a lot of ways. So I want to discuss some technical stuff for a sec. Um, and yeah. so the first thing I want to discuss is the location. So we know that they've shot in, you know, 80 locations and they added the visual effects afterwards. And I, I love the story of them finding the particle, particle accelerator in Thailand and wanting to shoot there because it was like awesome. And then like, no way you'll be able to shoot in our particle accelerator because this is serious science. And then they were like, but this director made Star Wars. And like, really? Can we be in it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the one I wanted to discuss was the beach shot. So there's a beach shot at night. Uh, they're running down mm -hmm. on the beach. Um, obviously, Jason, I'm really interested in your point of view on the the quality of that footage, given that it's being shot on a basically what we get a call for our terms of domestic Sony FX3 camera. And I love the fact that, by the way, in that shot, in the distance, they didn't shut the beach down. Like there are actually bars you can see back in the distance the, and people didn't even come down and question what they were doing because there were so few of them filming that sequence that they just thought it was some student film or something, right? But in the background, there are, yeah, they never clear, they never, whatever, in the back, mm -hmm. what is, what is, whatever is there is there. But but like that was, uh, to Matt's earlier point about shooting with like run and gun, gorilla, you know, Stu Mashowitz kind of approach to lighting and everything. That was ridiculously low light. And yet, I mean, it looked cinematic to me. I, I couldn't honestly tell you there were any flaws. If you told me that was shot on an Alexa for a $300 million film, I don't think I'd have been able to tell the difference. 100% agree. What are, what are uh, you, you would be able to tell the difference because the Alexa wouldn't be that clean. <laughs> okay. There would, be, there would be a big Deacon's light behind you, you know, uh, uh, lighting up the air so that you could really get a, it's not a knock on the Alexa. It's just, you can't shoot clean ISO 12,800 on those cameras. They're not made for that. But they're getting a <clears> signal <throat> that's that clean off of the FX3. Like I mean, that's I am, not noisy. Are they denoising stuff after? Or? I am sure there is denoising happening as all movies do. So I don't yeah. think that's unique to this film if they did that. But A, they're using anamorphics for the most part. They're using kawas, which are, notoriously squishy. So you get a little bit of lensy stuff. Mm -hmm. I think Oren said they shot a lot of stuff on the 75 mil Kawa, which is a gorgeous lens, but very compressed and, and goopy in the best of ways. Uh, and yeah, that there, you could go online right now and, and see like moonlight lit by moonlight shorts that people have shot on the a, every version of the A7S and the FX3 is just a pro version of an A7S body sensor, whatever. They are they are made to do that, and I, you, I, I was very pleased with. I saw the trailer for this again at Oppenheimer, which was at IMAX Lincoln Square in New York City, which is, I think second to the screen in Sydney, the largest screen in the world mm -hmm. uh, for actual IMAX. And I'm sorry, but the, there is no image issues. You know, sure, is there grain? Yes, but it looks like 
appropriate noise for a film, not some gross digital garbage. So, I mean, again, let's also go backwards to before they would have shot both Greg Frazier and Oren Soffer would have done more than enough research to have known what they could get away with to choose that setup. No one just said, fuck it. Let's just use a cheap camera. Cause I, again, that, had they gone with a bigger camera, I don't think it's like that big of a budget hit. Uh, did they have like 12 Ace, um, FX3s? Probably. You know, they're able to have more cameras at their disposal to get a bunch of shots. Cool. But I think this is this is an intentional thing. And I think we should focus on the fact that these are professionals who have made intentional, informed decisions. Because there was a lot of chatter online, like, I can't believe they shot on the FX3. Why would they do that? Blah, blah. You're like, because that guy shot Dune and killing them softly. And Oren is a very well-experienced DP. And Gareth has made $150 million movies. That's why you should just not question them, <laughs> right? Until you see the film. And then you can question it. But leading up to it, everyone was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's just, it just makes no sense to me. They they managed to do very long takes because they would just yeah. shoot like and shoot and shoot and shoot. And that allowed a lot of uh I'm not gonna say improv in terms of the script, but improv in terms of the blocking and the way that things were going, because Gareth said like 100%. if he wanted to swing around, he could just swing around because there was like anyone that was crew or anyone that was on wasn't sitting on deck, you know, director's chairs watching from video village. They were like way away or in costume or hidden. So he could shoot in any direction. That did mean, however, that I think the first cut of the film was five and a half hours long. Um, yeah. There must have been a hell of a shooting ratio on this. I can't mm-hmm. imagine what the shooting ratio would be. I, yeah, I'm sure. But again, the you know shooting ratios are are really count under different scenarios for different capture mediums. I'm not mm-hmm. saying everyone should just hose it down, but like given that they're in this unique location, like shoot as much as you can in the location, like just get what you can, especially because there's, I mean, there's not a lot of quote set pieces that aren't very visual effects laden. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if those are visual effects laden, then you're, you're prepping and doing a lot of stuff, but there's a ton of stuff that's just interpersonal dialogue and, and, and character development and world building that, yeah, you want to be able to explore those, those, interactions and and have that i mean for all intents and purposes it's not much different than than uh scoot mcneary and i forget the woman's name from monsters i mean they're sitting in a pickup truck talking while someone's driving them away from the infected zone like it they're the same scenarios he's just now has more money and a larger scope but his approach clearly is not that much different in in these two movies in a lot of ways Hmm. Uh, so so, Matt, can I swing to you to discuss mm-hmm. the limb shots? Because it's one of the ones that aren't discussed very much, but clearly it's visual effects. Because uh, Joshua doesn't have, uh, mm-hmm. what is it, his right arm and his left right leg? Anyway, he's clearly been a victim. And so that's a really interesting performance thing that he is you know, partly able to even move because of robotics. But leaving that aside for a second, there are shots where you see him clipping on things from when he's out of the pool and mm-hmm. and, and other times. Uh, how do we rate those in terms of visual effects? I think they're pretty successful. I think there's a thing that happens with those kind of shots, like you saw the same thing in um, Forrest Gump, 
and when they did the the leg removal on Lieutenant Diane. And I think there's a thing that happens in some of those shots that I, I can only speak, you know, kind of ignorantly about it because I feel like, you know, when you see someone in real life, who, you know, isn't maybe isn't like a close friend of yours and stuff like, and you see them at the public swimming pool or whatever, like, you know, it's impolite. Uh, you know, we've all been raised, I think, to be believing it's impolite to stare at someone, of course. So you try to just, you know, hey, whatever, like we're all different and that's cool. And so I think there's a thing that you see with like, in particular, his, I think it's his right arm and the right mm-hmm. shoulder. And there's a portion just below the deltoid like of the humerus bone that's still present and the way mm-hmm. that it doesn't move um, as a sort of vestigial remnant of the arm when it, it looks good, but the way that it doesn't move at all, there's no musculature movement. There's no um, indication that it would be capable of, of uh, operating a robotic limb. I feel like those are tricky because, you know, the actor's wearing some kind of a sleeve, and to have that limb, you know, digitally removed later and replaced with the other. And I, I just think sometimes that the the vestigial part of the limb is difficult to articulate in a way that at least doesn't, it sometimes gives away the effect, not for any reason other than I think it's, at least in my opinion, it looks like something that like, it, it doesn't quite look natural, doesn't quite look right. Um, when it's not there. I don't even oh. know how the muscles would work on a bicep because the biceps, you know, flex based on them being pivoted, sorry, attached kind of down at the mm-hmm. at the elbow the and del- at the, the, the deltoid and stuff would still likely be able to move that remnant yeah. to some. I mean, I just don't know, but I kind yeah. of agree that there's almost something about, I agree that you don't want to stare because you want nobody to, you know, yeah. you want people to feel comfortable. It's hard to do but, research on that one, I would think. Yeah. But having said that, yeah, there was something. I guess for me, I was thinking, how would I have done it differently? And I would have had marks or pressure points or something on the stump to indicate that it lived most of its time in a fixture. Now you could argue that they're so advanced that they have some special whatever that means that it doesn't have any, but it just felt to me like, uh, well, if if hands do a lot of work in the garden, they get leathery, right? And I yeah, imagine if yeah. you've got a, a limb that has been... Um, you know, it had to be surgically removed or, or or has been operated on like that, that there must be some kind of leathery kind of wear or skin thing. It wouldn't just look like normal pink skin right to the point that it isn't there, if that makes sense. When I, I have I a friend, know. I worked on a film with a, a woman who's a Paralympic athlete in the uh, Matthew Barney's Cremaster 3. And and we hung out, you know, a lot. She's really cool. She was same same age as me. She's been in Stranger Things and stuff since then. Amy Mullins and and she talked really candidly about her. She was born without the one of the weight bearing bones in both of her lower legs, and on her first birthday had them amputated. And she went on to become like a model and you know does all this cool public speaking stuff and and a para Olympic athlete. But she talked a lot about it, and she had the two. Um just below the knee two limbs similar to that and they would move and they were sort of scarred and whatever but she had these socks and the soffit that she would put on these special Mm -hmm. socks and put them into the soffit of different legs and she could actually make herself different heights which was really cool and um and that became a part of one of the characters she played in one of in that cremester three movie at the guggenheim but i think it's interesting um you know the way in which 
that's portrayed, it works obviously thematically in that he's a literally a person who exists in two worlds, right? The Joshua character. Mm -hmm. But I think as a visual effect, I think the only other thing that you could do, and I, maybe they did do this. And so maybe I'm speaking out of my backside a little bit here, but you know, I'm certain that there would be people you could, you could consult with who would be, you know, thrilled to be talked to about, uh, and to provide their insight and, uh, you know, their can experience I, in that way. Can I also say, and I, and I would also point to your Lieutenant Dan example is as, as much as you would take the advice of say a consultant or, or research, mm -hmm. there is no way to change the physicality of what your fist is basically a pendulum at the end of your arm. Yeah. Good it's going to move the musculature and your body, your whole body moves with your arms like people yeah. walk and swing their arms and your yeah. shoulder moves and there's just I, I it's it i don't know if there's really a way to solve it i mean you see the lieutenant dan stuff which was incredible at the time and still holds up but when he moves his legs the where his leg flexes in the quad is it's flexing in the quad because it's holding his foot up and his center and, of gravity when he's on his yeah. hands is not where his center of gravity would be if he did exactly have a lower limb. And there's yeah. literally nothing you can do about it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just That's doing really the best point. you can with the thing because you can't, I mean, there's no way around it uh, unless you hire, hire a, a, uh, you know, an actor that has that mm -hmm. um, yeah, an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I do agree though with your, and of course this, this all goes into the, uh, this all goes into the past future kind of tech is you would say that, you know, as you said about your friend, like the limbs where the attachment point is, is obviously a wear, uh, a wear and tear area on the human mm -hmm, body, mm -hmm. uh, much like heels are and on people's heels have calluses and other things. Yeah. For yeah. Reasons. Totally. Um, but the the way that his thing went on was this like almost pneumatic suction thing right so like the way that it attached would and the way i looked at it was like oh that it like went on in a second obviously they show that yeah. flashback of him it's like trying it to like release to the there. hand yeah. yeah it's like yeah it, it's just like okay again from a visual design standpoint you're like okay we get it it he puts it on and in, in the next cut he's walking over and doing the thing right uh uh, yeah, it's I a think, hard, it's a hard problem, I think, for sure. It's, it's not a super easy, hard problem. It's not an easy well, solution. We've almost run out of time, but I do want to just flag one non-visual effect thing that I thought was brilliant. In any $300 million film, you'd have had a digital monkey uh, in the sequence mm -hmm. on the bridge with the trip that that blew up <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, with the ship, or rather the mm -hmm. attacking tank effectively, when he picks up the remote control. Um they didn't. They got a local monkey trainer to train their monkey to actually come over and flip the switch. But Gareth told the story online, and he didn't tell it to me, but I've seen him telling the story that, that the monkey trainer had this female monkey that would flip the switch just exactly as you wanted. Um, the reward mechanism of the system that the trainer used was completely humane. Uh, it was that she got to go over and hang out, in inverted commas, and have a good time in inverted commas with a male monkey of, of camera <laughs> right. And every time she did a good take, she was allowed to go over and hang out with the um, male monkey. Um, and then uh, she would come back and do another take. And Isn't so that was the motivation for the, uh, 
yeah so 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 uh yeah gareth was like what's going on oh okay sure well i guess that's hmm okay <laughs> just yeah. no, no i'm sure waiter could have got a digital monkey and maybe in another film that they would have to but no. in that one but was uh but again, giving the giving the re- referential nature, and obviously, I don't know this, but Indiana Jones did not have a fake monkey. So That's true. Let's have a real a, a monkey. Couple, a couple other things I wanted to highlight, though, that I think are really important in terms of visual sure. effects in this movie that are, I think, really, really powerful. We talked about Nomad, which, by the way, the best episode of the original series of Star Trek is the changeling with the robot. I am nomad. I don't know if it's a reference to that thing, but I love that episode of Star Trek. Um, it's so funny. And it, I think it's looking for the the creator in that story, in that movie. Although I know that wasn't the original <laughs> title of the movie, but um, uh, other effects that I thought were just fantastic is there are a number of just absolutely gorgeous scale uh thermal dynamic explosions that happen mm-hmm. and they're they're beautifully rendered and yeah. incredibly uh they convey an enormous amount of scale so in contrast to something we spoke about a few weeks ago <laughs> i think you know it's really powerful and it, and they're not um i mean they're beautiful in terms of their effects but they're horrifying right in terms of their mm-hmm. destruction. destruction and i thought those were yeah. really really well crafted incredibly well lit and rendered and the um you know the the sort of dynamics of the undulating nature of them as they mm-hmm. rise and get higher the the color shift uh, from within and um as it gets further away from the center of the explosive uh, charge and the shock that, wave and the shock overhead yeah. one with a really sweet and then yeah yeah those are those were really great and uh, like top shelf uh destruction sims and then um i think the other thing that really stood out to me and you know it was so uh had sid mead vibes all over it were the digital environments where they would extend the cityscapes mm-hmm. and there was yeah. one in particular where they come into one of the villages, I don't know if it's in, you know, somewhere in Southeast Asia, and they they kind of come into this one village, and there's uh, this vista, and you see way off in the distance, these giant triangular shaped buildings that kind of go up into the oh, sky. Yeah. And yeah. some of the some mm-hmm. of the architecture, and the depth cueing and the way in which those shots are composited, I just thought was, you know, chef's kiss. Well, like, the, the so monks, great. the monks temple, the monks temple mm-hmm. was just gorgeous. The, with the gold, the yeah. golden yeah. roof. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely beautiful stuff. And the only thing Nicely I Nicely rendered. To, absolutely. Like, and the way, like all the, the different facing angles of the tiles mm-hmm. on the golden roof as the sun you know, comes over the top of it and you get that kind of like beveling and shimmering light mm-hmm. moving across yeah. it, I thought was just phenomenal. And we mentioned the the nomad scanner as it moves up over the jungle yeah. and up the cliff and stuff. And that was also just so awesome. I don't not I they must have had something that they ran something over that has like that a topography scanner. It's like a laser scanner at a concert, like a laser yeah. through smoke at a concert. You know, watch the Watch the, I think it's the, you got another thing coming, Judas Priest right. uh, music video, you know, or Evil Eye or something, you know, like it's, that's a, that's a classic 70s rock and concert vibe. But I it also said, had, it had like, because it was a, because it hit all the topography and all the, the, the stuff like a scanner would, it felt invasive. Like it had yes. a, 
purpose, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, it's going to find something. It's not just a big beam of light. Yeah, no robot could hide out in that foliage. They would find them. It's true. And I thought that one one design thing that I just wasn't crazy about, and I just have to mention it because it stood out like a sore thumb to me as a production design or a futuristic design thing is the cars that had the four wheels that were sort of like sticking the out. Batmobile like ones? Triangular. Yeah, that, I don't think those worked. The in cop the ones? I don't know if it was a cop one or... Like the they one had that the rolls? flying cop ones, but the, yeah, I think it was the thing that rolled. There was a truck, but then there was like a car one. The ambulance? Had, yeah. Maybe it was an ambulance. I, I just wasn't crazy was, about that design. There was definitely. Yeah, it was like field. a wide base. Vibe. Yeah. It looked um, like, vibe. it looked like a thing that they, like probably what it was, like a thing they built rather. Yeah. And it just felt like it, it to function, it had to look a certain way and it didn't look quite like the same universe. I guess if we were going to finish on any note, it's just to once again, go back to where we started, which is to reiterate that to pull this off for like 86 million or 84, whatever it was, is mm -hmm. just so hard to believe. And it isn't some young filmmakers that are, you know, just managing to come up with a really clever script and, and pull it out of, you know, 17 years of like, whatever. These are, this is just like a different way of making blockbuster films. And if you can pull off a great successful film at 86 million. That's a completely different dynamic than everything being 300 million and opens up a whole different class of storytelling that's possible financially. And I think answers. shooting with a camera, you can buy a Best Buy too. Like, you know, I, I hear you know, all the, I'm sure that, yes, of course they did all the research and knew they could do it. But I also think there's something about that in conjunction with the budget, in conjunction with all the things we cited about this being yeah. someone from our generation, like, Imagine the, you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds who go and see this movie today and are just as inspired, you know, as probably the filmmaker was when he saw all those movies as a kid yeah. to go out and one day, you know, hey, I can do this too. You know, they, that same, that same cameras at Best Buy or, you know, whatever it is, you know, like there's a, yeah, there's a means by which, you know, these things are attainable. Absolutely. And I would, I would reframe uh, the, concept of the consumer camera uh angle to it's not that they it's not that they used it it's that they weren't afraid to use it yeah hmm. i think that is the actual angle here like they were not swayed by what will people think what will it, it was purely a just like the other things we talked about in the film is if it is it is function uh, function over form to a certain extent, like what is going to give us the thing we need to be able to function the way we want. And then we'll use things like a Ronin or other things to put it into form to, yeah. if, if it can do the thing that we want. But it had no uh, well, impact whatsoever, in my opinion. No, it of had course. Zero impact. Well, no, it did. The, well, I mean, it had a huge well, impact yeah. on the production. No, negative impact. I mean, it had yeah, no yeah. negative impact on the visuals. Like, I, I, no. thought, I thought visually this movie was stunning. I don't care what it was yeah. shot on, right. you know. Yeah, and it's but, a big full-frame sensor. It's not like you're, you know. Yeah. Gareth used the analogy of, of what happened when, synth I think it was synthesizers became, mm -hmm. because for the first time, a garage band could have a full orchestra, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And that's the, I think, the analogy here. It's not that it... You know, some people might argue, well, a 
you know, violins out of a synthesizer don't sound as good as the orchestra, and I'm sure they're bloody right. But the reality is that once you open up the world to allow the kid in his garage to have, mm-hmm. you know, violins and horns and whatever else they want because the synthesizer allows that, that opens up a huge opportunity for creativity. And uh, so, yeah. But well, hey, that's we, the we, really argument. Of, we, we really are out of time. We're going to have oh, to gonna stop. cut me off. I'm, all right, go. You go. Oh, I was just going to say, just as a button, that was the promise of like YouTube, right? Like some kid in in Illinois is going to make a masterpiece, you know, in the middle of the country because they have access to a tool and a distribution platform that they didn't before. And I would argue that Gareth is part of the prototype of that, having done that with monsters. So it's a it's in his it's in his nature. I'm, obviously, he got different distribution, but I mean the the concept that you could just go do it. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And, and let's face it, right? Like if, uh, by the way, if you haven't seen monsters, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen monsters, which is his sort of first theatrical film, it's totally worth going to see. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a really good film, but it's made on a tiny budget. And didn't but he do all the effects himself too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's and, the other uh, thing that's so cool. <laughs> He did so many interesting things in that film. He like literally do shots where he's like, there's something that I'm going to put in the background as like a 2D element and they're going to look at it from a boat and I'm going to cut right here because if it's one more frame, it's going to have these head go over it. I'm going to have to start rotoscoping and I don't want to do that. <laughs> and at no point do you feel like he's compromised the film, but he just like, yeah, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, an, there's an adage that says like visual effects artists are all kind of on some level frustrated filmmakers, right? And I've heard, mm-hmm. I mean, I've, we've heard that said before, right? And I think what's really exciting about Gareth Edwards is he's a guy who is in his own narrative. I mean, I think I heard him on The Business or something talking uh, with Kim Masters about it. And he was talking about how he, you know, got into visual effects out of school and, you know, wound up 10 years went by just working in the effects business. But it wasn't until much later that he was able to go off and make monsters. But that transition from effects artist to director has been challenging for a lot of different filmmakers. And I think it's really, really exciting and super interesting to see like someone like, like uh, Gareth Edwards go from that effects universe to the big screen with such amazing success, incorporating all the knowledge and skills he has from visual effects, but also really being so gifted at creating story and mise-en-scene, you know, like composition Mm -hmm. and like creating really powerful visual films with heart and that have a really great uh, story and good acting. I think that's a big challenge. And I'd love to hear if you get a chance to talk to him, Mike, I'd love to hear like, you know, his uh, take on, on that in particular, because I think he's he's a great model of success for for so many effects artists. But for a guy who, you know, we said did all the effects and like kind of picks up the camera and does it all. He's also clearly a really good collaborator. Otherwise, yeah. he mm-hmm. wouldn't have all these amazing. He wouldn't get amazing, the A team coming back. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. and they're not they're not in a token role. No. So you know he's he's bridging both of those things. He's happy to pick up the camera, but he's also collaborating with two great cinematographers. Anyway, I, as I say, I've I've got seconds before I have to walk out the door. Um, yeah. <laughs> but guys, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Jason, you're back from age. We haven't even had a chance to congratulate you on that, but we're looking forward oh, to hearing when we can about what you've Early been doing November. Now. Early November. That's all I'll say. Okay. Okay. In early November, we'll do that. And hopefully in early November, you'll finally get to uh, to do your story <laughs> with me about virtual production, um, which is now like a running gag of, uh, uh, yeah, it's, of uh, the show. It'll happen. It'll happen. 
Okay. So, but if somebody wants to connect up with you guys, where's the best place? Uh, anywhere you can, anywhere you can type the word Jason Diamond, uh, <laughs> minus the Beverly Hills plastic surgeon or my mom's dentist. Yeah, okay. MattWallen.com, VCU Arts, uh, yeah, Threads. What's that other thing called? It, no, not Instagram. Um, blue Sky? No, I'm not, on, I'm not on the Blue Sky. I'm on Mastodon and and threads and and i'm i'm obviously at fx guide i'm going to be stepping off for a couple of weeks i'm going to be going to uh uh spain and portugal so for a couple of weeks uh i will not be around but it's been great uh to talk to you guys i have to seconds now before i have to run out the door but uh it's been super terrific uh thank you guys so much for listening and uh we'll see you guys later if you have any questions or comments please email us at thefx at fxguide.com Copyright FX Guide, LLC.